Bibles this morning to Matthew 13. We're going to be looking at verses 47 to 53. Here we have Jesus' third recorded sermon, and it has revealed God's kingdom mysteries or sacred secrets. As we've discovered, these mysteries are aspects of God's will that were hidden from humanity until the appointed time of their revelation. With Israel's rejection of God's kingdom, Jesus was appointed to reveal the mysteries of God's kingdom to His disciples. As He says in Matthew 13, 11, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Jesus discloses that these kingdom mysteries in parable to are given to prevent those who are not His followers from understanding what He was revealing. He says in Matthew 13, 13, I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Quoting Isaiah 6, 10, Jesus clarifies His statement in Matthew 13, 15, saying, For the heart of this people has become dull, with their ears they scarcely hear, they have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Indeed, an individual's inability to understand God's Word is not because God's Word is too difficult. Instead, it's because they do not understand what they have willingly turned a deaf ear towards and a blind eye towards. Friends, spiritually deaf ears and blind eyes are symptoms of a hard heart, a spiritually hard heart. And I would challenge us, it would behoove us to examine ourselves and check to assure that our eyes are spiritual, that our ears are spiritual, that our heart is spiritually renewed. Now because of Israel's rejection, the rejection of the Messiah, the physical establishment of God's kingdom was placed on hold and awaits a future age when Israel will receive the Messiah as their Savior and Lord. During this present age, that physical kingdom is not here. During this present age, though, the spiritual kingdom is at hand. The spiritual kingdom is very much real and present with us. Now again, the physical aspect is waiting for a future day. But right now, the spiritual kingdom is still at hand. Now in the first six parables, Jesus conveys the inauguration of the kingdom, the opposition to the kingdom, and the people of the kingdom. And now in these final two parables, the dragnet and the householder, Jesus presents the judgment of the kingdom. The day is coming when the spiritual kingdom is going to merge with the physical kingdom. And that merger will come with judgment. In these two parables, the theme is responsibility. There is a responsibility to prepare for judgment and there's a responsibility we have today. Hence in Matthew 13, 47 to 53, Jesus presents the dragnet, the householder, and the kingdom. 
So let's go to verses 47 to 48 and 52. Matthew 13, 47 to 48 and 52. And let's begin with the presentation of the dragnet and the household of parables. Now again, as we've done in each of these parables, we've begun with the presentation, explained some things, and then we've moved into the interpretation. That's what we'll do today. So in Matthew 13, verse 47 to 48, and verse 52, the presentation of the dragnet and the household of parables. We're going to notice that once again, Jesus begins with that formulaic phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like... And we, as we've discussed, that verb is like homoeo means it, it can be compared to. In other words, it shares similar characteristics. There's something in the dragnet that is similar to the kingdom of heaven. There's something in the householder that's similar to the kingdom of heaven. Now let's look at specifically first at verse 47 and 48 and the dragnet. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. Now, just as Jesus has done in every one of these parables, he draws from an everyday life situation with which the Galileans were very familiar. Here he draws upon the fishing industry for his seventh parable. Now the city of Capernaum, the village of Capernaum, where Jesus was presenting this sermon, is located along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Fishing was the major source of industry in Capernaum. And so the people could very easily relate to this parable about fishing. And especially with the twelve apostles, who many were fishermen. This particular parable would have special meaning to them. Notice he begins the parable. Jesus says, a dragnet was cast into the sea. Now, in the Sea of Galilee, there are three types of fishing. First, there is hook and line fishing, where you bait a hook, cast it out, you catch one fish at a time. Second, there is a small net fishing, where a man would cast a net into shallow water and attempt to catch some small fish. And third, there is dragnet fishing. Dragnet fishing. Now, a dragnet, a sagene, a dragnet is a large fishing net attached to two boats, and then drugged through the sea in a semicircle. Floats were attached to the top, weights to the bottom of the net. And so as the boats drugged the net, anything larger than the net gauge would be caught. Now Jesus notes that the dragnet was gathering fish of every kind. There are at least 24 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. 24 species. And not all of them good to eat. Besides the various fish, weeds and other junk would often be gathered up into the net. And so after the net was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and the fishermen gathered the good fish in the containers, but the bad they threw away. Now notice that word good. You've heard this term before. It's the term kalos. It describes the fish that are desirable and profitable. They're good fish. They're desirable. They're profitable. But the bad, the sapros fish, is undesirable and unprofitable. Now your question may be, well, pastor, how or what determines whether these fish are good or bad, whether they're desirable or profitable? And the answer, amazingly, lies in the Torah. So let's go to Leviticus 11, chapter 9, or chapter 11, verses 9 and 12. Leviticus 11, 
verses 9 to 12. Leviticus 11, verse 9 begins this. These you may eat, whatever is in the water, all that have fins and scales, those in the water, in the seas, or in the rivers, you may eat. Whatever is in the seas and the rivers that does not have fins and scales among all the teeming life of the water and among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable things to you, and they shall be abhorrent to you. You may not eat of their flesh, and their carcasses you shall detest. Whatever in the water does not have fins and scales is abhorrent to you. Okay. So from the very beginning, God outlined various dietary laws. They're called kashrut. Okay. Dietary laws are called kashrut. For example, before the flood, humanity was permitted to eat grains, vegetables, and fruit. But meat was prohibited. So from Adam and Eve until the flood, you could eat grains and vegetable and fruit, but no meat. Meat was off the table. After the flood, God permitted grains, vegetables, fruits, animals, birds, and insects. Then when we come to Sinai, God gives Israel a much more rigid dietary law. And the purpose was twofold. There's two reasons why Israel was given this very strict dietary code. First, religiously, the dietary law made Israel distinct from the pagans and their worship. Okay, So certain meats were off the table because of their association with pagan worship. Medically, certain meats were prohibited because it kept them free from disease. Okay? Now, the specifics of the dietary laws in the Torah for Israel formed along the lines of what is clean and unclean. Now, a clean animal, a tahir, a clean animal would be an animal that is not associated with pagan rituals and it is free from potential disease. If you want to read more about it, read Leviticus 14. Unclean animals, tame, unclean, are animals or creatures associated with pagan rituals or not free from disease. Now, according to Leviticus 11, fish that have fins and scales are clean. Tahir. But if a fish or some type of sea creature lacks a fin and lacks scales, it's unclean. You say, well, what if it has a fin but no scales? Unclean. What if it has scales and no fin? Unclean. Has to have a fin, has to have scales. Clean fish in that neck of the woods would include bass, bluefish, crappies, drum, flounder, mackerel, salmon, snapper, and trout. Unclean fish in that time would be catfish, eel, squid, crab, lobster, oyster, and shrimp. So clean fish of the day were considered good and desirable. Unclean fish were bad or undesirable. You see, they were good or clean. Why? Because they could be sold in the Jewish markets. Therefore, they were profitable. But bad or unclean fish were unprofitable because Jewish people would not purchase them because of their designation as being unclean. Let's move to verse 52. And let's look at the householder parable. 
Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things old and, or excuse me, things new and old. Matthew 13, 52. Now, in the householder parable, Jesus again draws from what the people know, this time the Jewish religious world. The Jewish religious world. And notice he begins by saying what? Jesus said to them. Who is them? Them refers to the disciples. Remember, Jesus ended the public portion of his sermon, had returned to Peter's house, and continued the private portion of his sermon. Matthew 13, 36 says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And so the first four parables of Matthew 13 were spoken to the crowds, but the last four were spoken only to the disciples. And Jesus begins this final parable saying, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of household. Notice the word therefore. Hutas. Because of this. What Jesus is doing here is referring back to everything he has just revealed to the disciples about the kingdom. So beginning with the parable of the sower and the soils, the wheat and the weeds, right on down, because of all of that, he makes his next statement. This final parable, it's actually a wisdom parable, is given for the purpose of self-reflection. Up to this point, the parables are revealing things about the kingdom. And certainly this one does as well. But this one should cause us to take a moment of self-reflection. Jesus wants the disciples, He wants you and I, to consider what these parables mean and what our responsibilities are to the revelation of the mysteries of God's kingdom. What do they mean and what are our responsibilities to them? Next, he says, every scribe. Look at that word scribe, grammatus. Now, a scribe, a grammatus, was a part of a class of rabbis within first century A.D. Judaism known as the sofarim, the sofarim. Now, a scribe, a sofer, was responsible for copying the Torah and other religious writings. And because they spent time were copying the Hebrew Scriptures, they became students, instructors, and interpreters of the Torah and the Hebrew Scriptures. And so when someone wanted to know how to interpret the Torah, how to understand the, the writings, the prophets, etc., they would inquire of a scribe. The scribes were the theologians of their day. That the scribes were the de facto theologians and experts on the Hebrew Scriptures explains the background behind several verses in the Gospels. Let me give an example. When the people heard Jesus preach from the Hebrew Scriptures, they compared His preaching to that of the scribes. Mark 1.22 says, They were amazed at Jesus' teaching, for He was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, let's understand here that it is not that Jesus' preaching was more dynamic than the scribes, nor that the scribes' interpretation was necessarily wrong. What set apart Jesus' preaching or teaching from that of the scribes was that the scribes had to support their interpretations with the writings of other scribes. Because Jesus was God, He had His own authority and didn't need to quote anyone. So that set Him apart. 
On another occasion, recorded in Mark 9.11, Mark 9.11, the disciples asked Jesus, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now you need to understand here that any previous theological training the disciples had, they received in the synagogues from the scribes. So as Jesus continues their theological education, the disciples would often refer to what they had learned from the other scribes. And I think it's interesting that Jesus reveals in verse 12 of Mark 9 that the scribes were correct. He says Elijah does come first and restores all things. He went on, though, to explain that while the scribes were right about Elijah coming first, their interpretation was incomplete because they were lacking other revelation. They were lacking other divine revelation. So their interpretation was incomplete. Now, it is noteworthy that Matthew speaks more of the scribes than any other gospel records. And he usually presents them in the company of the Pharisees, chief priests, and elders of the people. Together, this group of scribes and Pharisees, chief priests, and elders form the religious leaders of Israel, but they also form the opposition to Jesus. And while Matthew often presents the scribes negatively, there are times when he pictures them in a positive fashion. So when he presents them with the other religious leaders, it's negative. And when they're by themselves, it's positive. According to Matthew 8, 19, a scribe came and said to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Okay? So here's a scribe coming to Jesus. I'm going to be your follower. I'm going to be a disciple. Two verses later, Matthew 8, 21, Matthew records another of the disciples spoke to Jesus. Notice use of the term there, another. Another of the same kind. What that tells us is that the scribe in verse 19 was a disciple of Jesus. So he was a disciple, but he was a scribe. So not all the scribes were wicked. Okay? I.e., not opposed to Jesus. Here's one who was a follower of Jesus. In this parable, Jesus reveals that every disciple of the kingdom, or every scribe that has become a disciple of the kingdom. So here again, we have the scribe presented in a positive light. Now he goes on and says what? A disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household. That phrase, head of household, is one Greek word, oikodespotes, oikodespotes. And it means one who is given authority over a household. We might call them a steward. A steward. One of the household or steward's responsibility was to care for the family's well-being. They managed the estate, the house. And so, in order to accomplish the task, the steward would maintain a treasure or treasury. And so, the term treasure here is the word thesaurus. We should be familiar with that term, thesaurus. We saw that last time uh, with the treasure hidden in the field. It was the same word, thesaurus. So the thesaurus, or the treasure, would be a repository or box which would store the money, the jewels, and other precious objects. 
And from this repository, the householder or the steward would provide the family members with clothing, with food, with money. Now a wise steward, a wise householder was very frugal. They were not frivolous and wasting the supplies. Any uneaten food, any unused clothing would be returned to the repository for latter use. And as the need arose, the householder or the steward would bring out of his treasure things new and old. Now we should also note that a householder always dispensed the older supplies before the newer supplies. So there we have the presentation of the dragnet and the householder. And with some of that background information, we can now move into our second thought, and that is the interpretation of the dragnet and householder parables. The interpretation of the dragnet and householder parables. Now, you'll recall there is no interpretation provided for the previous four parables. But Jesus does provide an interpretation of the dragnet and the householder parables. Here in Matthew 13, verses 49 to 53. The parable of the dragnet points to future judgment. The householder parable speaks to disciples about their present responsibility in the kingdom. So let's look at verses 49 to 50. And let's consider the dragnet interpretation. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them in the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice Jesus reveals that the dragnet parable depicts how it will be at the end of the age. What age? Well, the focus of all these parables has been upon the present age. So the end of the age must refer to the culmination of the present age. The last seven years of this present age are known as the Great Tribulation. And as the Great Tribulation draws to a close, Jesus returns to earth to judge and establish His physical kingdom. Now notice He said, the dragnet is cast into the sea. Remember, recall in the parable of the costly pearl, that the sea is a picture of the nations. The dragnet is a symbol for the angels. And when Jesus returns at the end of the present age, He says the angels will come forth. Like a dragnet, the angels are going to gather up people from every nation, both righteous and unrighteous. Presently, God is allowing the good fish and the bad fish to swim together in the same water. Just like He's allowing the weeds to grow up with the wheat. But the day is coming when the fish will be gathered and the field will be harvested. In Matthew 24, verse 30 to 31, Jesus says this, The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, I need to pause here for a moment. Matthew 24 is not about the rapture of the church. There is no mention of the rapture in Matthew. Now that is not to say the rapture is not real, it's going to happen. But the focus on Matthew has always been on 
the present age and what's going to happen. But he's not really dealing with the church. He's predominantly dealing with who? Israel. Okay? And the kingdom. In Matthew 24, and when we get to that sermon, that's the last sermon, that's the fifth sermon we have. We're going to go through that. But I want you to understand, Matthew 24, those signs are the signs that you'll see if you're living through the tribulation. So friends, I want to tell you, if you're looking for those signs listed in Matthew 24, beginning somewhere around verse 5, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and this and that, I got a word for you. You're looking for the wrong thing. If you see those signs, you miss the rapture. You see those signs, you're living in the great tribulation. And you're going to believe a lie. Wow. We're going to see when we get to that sermon that Matthew 24 actually outlines the entire book of Revelation. So we're going to go right through Matthew 24 and we're going to lay it out right, in, right with Revelation. So when we get to Matthew 24 and we get to verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and the nations are going to see Him. That's the return of Christ. Okay, That's the return of Christ, not the rapture of the church. Listen, nobody's going to see the rapture happen. Okay, The only reason they're going to know anything happened is because Christians are going to be gone. We're going to be caught up. But when the Son of Man returns, every eye will see Him. But pastor, look, there's a trumpet mentioned there. Yeah, the great trumpet. 1 Thessalonians tells us at the last trump. Do you know the last trump and the great trump are not the same trump? They're two different horns, two different shofars. The great trump, or excuse me, the last trump is sounded at Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. That's when we're going to be gathered. The rapture. Okay. The great trump is sounded on the Day of Atonement. At which time everybody's eternal fate is sealed. So when it says the great trumpet, it's the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement points to prophetically to the return of Christ. Feast of Rosh Hashanah points to the rapture of the church. Two different horns. Okay. So notice the return of Christ is... He's coming in the clouds with power and great glory. He's going to send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they're going to gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And just like the fishermen bringing the dragnet ashore to separate the fish, the angels will bring all people to Jerusalem. Now listen to the words of Matthew 25, 31 to 33. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne all the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Okay? So, the return of Christ. He returns in glory. The angels with him. Great trumpet sounded. They go forth and they start harvesting. Okay? And they gather all the peoples from all the nations into Jerusalem. And if you're wondering, how's he going to get them there? Listen, if he can instantaneously make people disappear off this earth and appear in heaven, he's going to have no problem instantaneously getting people from anywhere in the world to Jerusalem in the blink of an eye. And just as the fish are separated, so everyone is going to be separated according to whether they're clean or unclean. The clean are going to be the righteous, the sheep. 
The unclean are going to be the unrighteous or the goats. And after the separation, listen to the words Jesus utters in Matthew 25, 33. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed in my father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The righteous are going to be welcomed into God's kingdom. At that moment, the spiritual kingdom is going to merge with the physical kingdom. And the church, that's us, we're who we are going to return with Jesus, and we are going to reign with him over that kingdom. You say, well, what becomes of the sheep? What becomes of the clean and the righteous? Well, the clean and righteous Jewish believers of the past age are going to be resurrected. The clean and righteous Jewish believers murdered during the tribulation are going to be resurrected. And together with the Jewish believers, the clean, righteous Jewish believers who live through the tribulation, they will become the redeemed nation of Israel. Israel will once again be the central nation of God's kingdom on earth. The Gentile believers of the past age will also be resurrected. The Gentile believers who live through the tribulation will be resurrected. And together with the Gentile believers who live through the tribulation, they will form the new redeemed Gentile nations. And they will become part of God's kingdom. Just as the birds found protection and provision in the branches of the mustard bush, so these redeemed Gentile nations will find protection and provision in God's kingdom. You say, but pastor, what happens to the unclean, unrighteous Jews and Gentile goats? Jesus says the angels will take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. That's what he says right here. Well, what does that furnace of fire represent? Listen to Matthew 25, 41. I will say to those on my left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, what place has been prepared for the devil and his angels? Hell. Therefore, the unclean, unrighteous goats are going to be cast into hell. Now, this doctrine of hell is a rejected doctrine. Even within Christendom. Folks, the fact that hell was created for Satan and his fallen angels implies that it is real as the devil and his demons. That Christ spoke often of hell proves that it is a genuine place. And here he describes it as a place, what? Of torment, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The torment of hell is real. In Luke 16, Jesus recalls a rich man who died and went to hell. He says in verse 23 to 24 of Luke 16, In hell, in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eye, being in torment. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Friends, do not trifle with a holy God. Hell is real. And hell is no party. There is no pleasure in hell. Only continual agony, pain, and fiery torment. And I would encourage each and every one of you to examine yourself regarding the reality of hell. If you have never repented of your sin, if you have never believed the gospel, you will not escape the torment of hell. The only escape is to repent of your sin and believe the gospel. Make sure you've done that business with the Lord. Now let's look at verse 51 to 53. The householder. Verse 51 to 53. Let's look at the interpretation of the householder. Verse 51. Have you understood all these things? 
They said to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. Now, notice here, before giving this final parable, Jesus asked the disciples, Have you understood all these things? Now that verb understood, sunume, you can render it this way. Have you correctly put these things together? That would be a very literal rendering. Have you correctly put these things together? But the verb implies more than simple comprehension of facts. When he asks them if they understand, what he's actually asking them is this. Are you ready to give up your life for my kingdom? Are you ready to give up your life for my kingdom? Now friends, each and every one of us ought to be asking that same question. You read those words there, you ought to be asking yourself. Jesus is asking you right now. Are you ready to give up your life for his kingdom? Now I've got to be honest with you. From the lack of people faithfully attending churches, from the lack of people faithfully serving in churches, we can only presume today that many believers, quote unquote, have not given their life up for God's kingdom. How about you? Have you given it up for His kingdom? Listen, look at the apparent apathy on the part of many to sit under the teaching of Scripture. The apathy to fellowship with other believers. The apathy to partake in the Lord's Supper. The apathy to enjoin ourselves to corporate prayer. And what does Jesus say? What's that saying to Jesus? You know what it says? It says, hey Jesus, your kingdom's not important. I'm not willing to commit because your kingdom's not important. What's your attitude towards the preaching of Scripture? Oh, i got to do it again. What's that say? What's your attitude towards fellowship with other believers? I got time for that. What's that say? You know, what about partaking of the Lord's Supper? You know, you know, when's the last time you've partaken of the Lord's Supper? I know of some Christians who have not partaken of the Lord's Supper in years. What does that say? Well, here's what Jesus says. They're not worthy of His kingdom. If you're not willing to commit, Jesus says you're not worthy. Hmm. So we've got to ask ourselves that question. Now, notice the disciples, their response. They said to him, yes. Yes, they're ready to give up their life for the kingdom. Now, they were far from perfect. Okay, They had their foibles and faults, and they were going to stumble and fall. But they're still saying, I'm committed. I'm going to go the full way. When I fall, I'm going to pick myself up, brush myself off, and keep going. And so Jesus begins his response to their affirmation with a final parable. Okay, because you say you're ready to commit yourself to the kingdom, I've got one last parable for you. The parable of the householder. Note again that term, therefore. This is that wisdom parable, the householder parable. He's giving them this parable because he wants self-reflection. 
Folks, you and I, as we read this parable, as we study this parable here, this very last one, it, this needs to be a time of self-reflection. It needs to be a time that we're looking within ourselves, not looking at everybody else, not asking, well, so-and-so this and so-and-so that. No, it needs to be you and you alone before a holy God, one-on-one with the Great One, and saying to yourselves, what is my responsibility to the kingdom of God? Okay? How does this revelation impact you? What revelation? Well, the mysteries of God's kingdom. How does everything we've learned in Matthew 13 impact you? What does it mean to you? And then, how does the revelation of this kingdom mysteries impact you in in regard to your responsibility? What is your responsibility to what we've just preached? To what we've just covered? To what we've just interpreted? Now, to the first question regarding the meaning and the impact of this revelation, listen, disciples of yesteryear and today have been told how the spiritual kingdom is going to be inaugurated. Here's what we know. We know that it is the declaration of the gospel that inaugurates the spiritual kingdom. You say, but pastor, what about those who do not respond positively to the gospel? Jesus reveals to us in Matthew 13, you should expect negative responses. Some are going to outright reject you. Others will appear to believe the gospel and later reject it. Only a minority will accept the gospel and it will become evident in their lives. At the same time, listen, amongst this minority, there are going to be counterfeit pseudo-believers who are going to claim to be genuine and for a time they're going to be indistinguishable. But nevertheless, the time is going to come when their true nature will be revealed. Believers, we don't need to fret. Don't worry about those who reject the gospel. Don't worry about those who receive it and then later reject it. And don't be surprised by the counterfeits in your midst. Don't act like, you know, I didn't see this coming. If you've been in Matthew 13, you've seen it coming. Jesus says clearly here, the enemy has planted counterfeits in the church. Now, does the enemy's infiltration mean that the kingdom is doomed? Is the church of God somehow doomed? No. See, while the present form of the kingdom, the church may appear small, it does not imply that it is without power. Regardless of the opposition, whether it's from the outside or the inside, the church of God, the spiritual kingdom, will not be defeated. Matthew 16, 18, there Jesus declares, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Indeed, the parables reveal that though the kingdom, presently the church, may be small, it is going to grow and grow and grow until it merges with the physical kingdom in the future age. Additionally, friends, the church corporately and individually, believers individually, we have been tasked with declaring the gospel during this present age. How are we doing on that front? How's the church doing with that? How are you individually doing on that front with spreading the gospel? Oh man, I tried it. I gave it up because I was rejected. Well, I guess you were rejected. You already know rejection's coming. But you don't give up because rejection's coming. You keep going for that minority out there that wants to hear and that's ready to hear. Despite the opposition to the gospel, despite the opposition... The ministry of the gospel may be hidden. It may not get much attention from the world, but it is nonetheless permeating the world. 
So that when Jesus returns and establishes His physical kingdom on earth, the effects of the gospel's permeation will be evident as we will see believers from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people make up that kingdom. And furthermore, these parables have revealed the value of Israel and the church. These people, these groups, Israel and the church are so near and dear to God that Jesus gave His life to redeem them, to preserve them, to guarantee their future. And just as Israel did not cast off, or just as God did not cast off Israel because of her sin, so too, praise God, He will not cast off the church. Israel will be redeemed and restored to the Messianic kingdom. The church will reign with King Jesus over that kingdom. And everyone and anyone who's ever opposed Israel or the church or rejected the gospel is going to be judged and cast into hell and ultimately into the lake of fire. That's what these parables mean to us. Now to the second question regarding our responsibility to this revelation. We must heed the meaning of the householder parable. We must heed this parable. In short, all who understand Jesus' teaching must be prepared to teach others everything that He has spoken. You must be prepared to speak what Jesus has spoken. Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, Mark 6, 15, 16, 15. Go in all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, teach them how to observe all that I have commanded you. That's our job. Notice Jesus says here in Matthew 13, Every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Now, the original disciples, the original twelve, were not scribes. Yet Jesus refers to them as scribes. Why? Well, listen to Paul's explanation in Romans 3 verse 2. Israel was entrusted with the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? The Hebrew Scriptures. Particularly in the words of Paul in Romans 9.4, the Hebrew Scriptures contain the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. Israel was entrusted with those things to observe them and to pass them on to the next generation. Now while there were specific people called scribes who had a responsibility to do that, God expected all Israel to do that. All Israel was to study and teach God's law and pass it on. That was their responsibility. And they failed. They failed. So when Jesus says, who has become a disciple, He is referring specifically with those who are His followers. Now as we've discovered, and I'll hit it again here just as a reminder, a disciple or a Talmudim is someone who studies under the tutelage of a teacher, a rabbi. And in Jewish culture, a disciple is bound to the rabbi for life. And after years of sitting under the rabbi, learning the law and the Hebrew scriptures, they would then be commissioned to go out and teach others also. Which is exactly what we're seeing here in Matthew 13 and this parable of the householder. Well, how do I become a disciple of Jesus? you got to come on His terms. What are those terms? Mark 1.15 Repent and believe in the gospel. There's the terms. Everyone who, who repents of their sin and believes the gospel, that is Jesus is the Son of God, He died, He shed His blood for the remission of sins, was buried, rose again on the third day, that is a disciple of Jesus. At that moment, at the moment of salvation, every one of you as a believer became attached to Jesus for life. Okay? 
And you're not just any kind of disciple, you're a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. You are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. And as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, Jesus is not only your Lord and your King, He is your rabbi. He's your teacher. Therefore, you are kingdom citizens. And hence, every Christian is a disciple, every disciple is a kingdom citizen, and every kingdom citizen is a kingdom servant. Now you say, well, how do I serve Him? Well, there's many areas in which to serve. But he says, every disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of household. Every disciple is like a head of household. Remember, the head of household, the householder, serves as the steward over the master's household. Every disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a steward. See, in this present age, right now, King Jesus has commissioned each and every one of you to be stewards of his household. Every individual disciple. There's no disciple that say, well, I'm not responsible. Oh, yes, you are. You are a householder in God's kingdom. And you have, as a householder, as a steward, you have a particular authority over the master's treasury. He has entrusted to you his treasury. What is that treasury? What are you supposed to do with it? Well, the steward would invest, pay bills, make contributions. Notice what Jesus says here. The steward, the householder, brings out of his treasure things new and old. Well, what are these treasures and what are these new and old treasures? Well, the treasure, the thesauros, refers to the scripture. Filled with precious truths revealing God, pointing to Jesus and directing believers towards holiness and righteousness. And the old treasure was the law, the writings, and the prophets. We call it the Hebrew scriptures. The new treasure refers to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. You say, well, that's good. I'll stick with that new stuff, but let's get rid of that old stuff. No, every steward is to bring out of his treasure things new and old. Hmm, can't get rid of it just because it's old. See, the term new, kainos, it's something previously unknown. Up to this point, the mysteries of the kingdom were what? Previously unknown. Now that they've been made known, we have a responsibility to disseminate that truth. But that term old, paleos, paleos, refers simply to something that is older. That is, the, revolution, the, the revelation contained in the Hebrew Scriptures was older than the revelation given by Jesus and the Apostle. But the fact that the Hebrew Scriptures are referred to as older doesn't mean they're obsolete, nor that they've been abolished. Let's go right back to the first sermon Jesus preached in Matthew 5.17. Do not think for a moment that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Well, Pastor, that will fulfilled means to put away. What dictionary do you use? The Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament says the term fulfill, parao, means to give the true or complete meaning of something. I didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets. I came to what? Give the true and complete meaning of it. Strong's concordance. The word fulfill means to cause God's will as made known in the law to be obeyed as it should be. To cause God's promises given through the prophet to receive their fulfillment. Hmm. To cause God's will is made known in the law to be obeyed. Hmm. 
Bridget Young used as this. Surely to fulfill means to complete in the sense of bring to perfection. Not as Christians too often, she says, have interpreted it or rendered to render as obsolete. No, it means to fulfill in such a way as to provide a perfect foundation on which to further build. Friend, Jesus has commissioned you, every one of us as believers, to be stewards in his kingdom, dispensing from the treasury of Scripture teachings from both Testaments, the Older Testament and the Newer Testament. Note the verb brings out, ekbalo, means to cast forth, to scatter, to distribute widely. Now remember, a household or a steward was supposed to be frugal and modest in their distribution of the family's wealth. But here Jesus calls upon us to widely cast forth and distribute the treasures of Scripture. My friends, as we declare God's Word, we should never be stingy nor meager in its declaration, but generous and ample. And the very first treasure you need to put out there is the seed of the gospel upon the soil of humanity's heart. And from there you need to continue to exegete, that is, mine out the treasures of God's Word, because in the words of Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture, and by the way, at that time, the only Scripture they had was the Hebrew Scriptures, all Scripture is inspired by God, and all Scripture is profitable. I got news for you. You think you don't need the Old Testament? You're missing out, friends. You don't have everything you need to be profitable, to be complete. All Scripture is by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Can you imagine training somebody in the military but only giving them half the training? Oh, you only need half of basic training and then we'll send you off. No, they need the full period of basic training. And then they continue to add to that and add to that and add to that. And yet we have Christians today that want to throw out three-quarters of the training manual. Both Testaments, the older and the newer, provide rules and guidelines for every area of your faith and practice. And if you want to be a good steward, then you've got to be a scribe. Studying and teaching all Scripture, both the old and the new. I'm afraid that there are many of you, my friends, who are making excuses about being a scribe, being a teacher, being a discipler. I've heard the excuses, well, I've done my time. I've heard the I'm too old excuse and I'm too busy excuse. And I'm going to tell you that before a holy God, those excuses are simply nonsense and do not hold weight with King Jesus. He has commissioned each and every one of you to be a steward, to be a teacher of His Word. You need to stop making excuses. You need to find an area or find areas in which you can teach God's Word. Perhaps there's a teaching ministry opportunity in the educational ministries of the local church. Or perhaps it involves you personally discipling another believer. Whatever the area is, find it and stop making excuses and get to the business which God has commissioned you to get do in this present age. Verse 53 brings our sermon to an end. When Jesus had finished these parables. Same phrase we saw in Matthew 7.28 when Jesus finished these words. And Matthew 11.1 when Jesus finished giving instruction. Friends, the dragnet parable is a warning to every one of us. Judgment is coming. The decisions we make in this life are going to have eternal consequences. Every one of us ought to be asking ourselves, am I a clean fish or an unclean fish? Now, if you've genuinely repented of your sin, you believe the gospel, you're a clean fish. You're set apart for the kingdom. But if you've refused to genuinely repent of your sin and believe the gospel, you're unclean still. 
And if you remain an unclean fish, you're going to be cast in a lake of fire. My friends, this is not some children's story meant to scare children into obedience. The dragnet is a picture of a very real situation that awaits every person. You know, maybe you're sitting here and you're wondering whether your repentance and faith is genuine. That's a major theme in Matthew 13. Fruit. You see, seeds cast upon bad soil do not produce fruit. Only seeds cast upon good soil produce good fruit. Wheat and weeds look alike for a time. But when their fruit begins to appear, the weed produces edible grain. The weeds only produce poison. And what did Jesus, taught, what did Jesus tell us in Matthew seven sixteen? You will know them by their fruits. Folks, I've got to challenge you. Take inventory of your fruit production. You want to know if you're genuine or not? Look at your fruit. Let me ask you this. Is there any fruit of repentance? Is there any fruit of the Spirit in your life? Is there any fruit of obedience? Let, 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 let's, let's back it up in the broadest terms possible. Is there any fruit at all in your storehouse? Okay. If you're looking at your storehouse saying, yes, there's fruit, praise Jesus. Man, if you're looking at your storehouse and it's empty with nothing but cobwebs, you need to get down to business. The householder parable informs us that we are not only kingdom citizens and not only kingdom servants, but we are kingdom scribes and stewards. Believers, you and I have been gifted with the ability to be students of God's word. We need to learn how to interpret what God has revealed. And we must also in turn be teachers of God's word. We need to share with others what God has revealed. And as stewards, we need to take great care of the treasure God has given us. The oracles of God. From the law to the writings to the prophets to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. Remember, Israel was formerly the caretaker of this treasure. And because of their failure, that responsibility was taken from them and given to the church. Oh, may the church be ever faithful in the stewardship of God's word. Lest he come along and take that responsibility away from us and give it to another. Let's go on, kingdom citizen, kingdom servant. Let's go on and be kingdom scribes and kingdom servants. Father God in heaven, Lord, mighty one, we come to you through that precious blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb that was slain. We're redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with that precious blood of the lamb. And so we come to you, Father, bathed in that blood. And so you see us, Father, as holy and blameless. And I thank you for that. I praise you, Father, that before the foundation of the world, you laid out a plan. A plan for the kingdom. That included a plan for Israel and a plan for the church. I thank you, Father, that you've given us a responsibility as a church, as the spiritual kingdom, to be scribes and to be stewards. And Father, we ask forgiveness because we must confess that too often we make excuse. Too often we come up with reasons why we can't study and why we can't teach and father it just doesn't cut it with the holy god it doesn't cut it with you it doesn't cut it with our king our lord jesus and so father if there's ever been a time we've made an excuse forgive us father i pray that you would forgive us for not being faithful in our stewardship faithful in handling your word Instead, Father, we live in, in a time when the church has rejected three-quarters of the instruction manual. Father, I pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us of wrongly dividing your word. 
and help us to rightly divide the word of truth. Help us to dispense, not frugally, but frivolously, widely, casting forth the treasures of your word, both the newer and the older. Father, I thank you that you've given us such a task. I pray that you'd watch over us and help us to that end to fulfill that ministry, to accomplish the task that you have set before us. And Father, I ask and pray that ultimately, Lord, you would be glorified, you would be praised by all we do until your kingdom comes. And we pray these things and say, Amen.